Sal Berry, and Tim Parrish. This is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm Sal Berry and with me is Tim Parrish. And today we are joined by a special guest, hockey royalty Craig Patrick, who is currently the commissioner of the new Three Ice Three on Three Hockey League that's launching later this month. But Craig has a resume as long as my arm. He was a a two-time Western Collegiate Hockey Association champion. He played in the NHL and the WHA from 1971 to 1979. He was the GM of the Pittsburgh Penguins for 17 years, won two Stanley Cups as general manager, drafted a few guys you may have heard of, Yarmir Yager, Sidney Crosby, Marc-Andre Fleury, Evgeny Malkin, among many others. He was also the youngest GM in New York Rangers history at age 35, also the assistant coach for the Miracle on Ice USA hockey team from 1980, and he was inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame as a builder in 2001. I know most hockey players don't like to talk about their own accomplishments, so I thought it would be wise for me to just get those out there for our listeners who might be familiar with some of your accomplishments, but not many of your other accomplishments. Sir, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. So I guess I want to start with talking about Three Ice because Tim and I talked about this on the show in the past and uh, we're both very excited about summer hockey. We love three-on-three hockey. I've been a big fan of how the NHL converted to three-on-three overtime. Not everybody likes it. Call it a gimmick or whatever. I think it's fantastic. So what would you like listeners to know about the Three Ice League? Well, it was um, it all came from um, Eddie Johnson's son EJ, who grew up in hockey, uh, and I've worked with Eddie for years and played with him, coached against him, managed against him, and worked together with him. I still work with him in the, with the Penguins. We're doing some scouting, and his son went to uh, Devils rookie camp, and also to a Penguins rookie camp. And in those camps, they played three-on-three hockey in tournament style under NHL rules. And his background is TV and marketing. He did some fashion shows on TV for a bunch of years out in Hollywood. And he knew, knows TV and he knows marketing. And he just he sat there and all the people were sitting on the edge of the seat watching these rookies who nobody knows playing three-on-three hockey. And he said, they're all sitting on the edge of the seat. And it was, it was so exciting. He said to himself, he said, this would be great for TV. And for four years now, he's been putting this program together. He hired, he brought me in about a year and a half or two years ago, but he started four years ago. And it's, he's got, it's amazing what he's done with uh, raising money. And we've actually changed a lot of the rules that uh, the NHL plays by for, for our particular format. And it, to me, it makes it much more exciting. In the NHL three on three, it's one and done. If you score, it's over. But in our situation, we play two halves, eight minute running halves, and there's a lot of goal scoring being done. So it's uh, I was excited about getting involved, and I was exciting about excited about having our training camp out in Vegas. But I was blown away with how much better it actually is than what I anticipated. And I, I, was, I was enthusiastic about it from the very beginning. And I'm, I'm just can't wait to get started. And we're 12 days away and uh, just all excited about getting started. The concept is very exciting. I mean, the fact that you get the you know overtime hockey, but it's spread out 
in an entire game is unreal to me. I haven't seen the product yet, but I can just imagine in my head the speed of this on the ice. Yeah, well, with all the open ice and and the space to move and you know the speed of some of these skaters, especially some of these ex NHLers, these aren't slow pokes by any means. The flow and speed are amazing, and uh, we we found that out in Las Vegas. And we we have two faceoffs, one to start each half. That's it. No more faceoffs. The rest two of whistles. Time. That's it. Yeah, whistles, and uh, the only time the clock stops is for an injury or for a penalty shot. Penalty shots occur when there's a penalty made, and uh, we don't. Nobody sits in the penalty box. We have six skaters on a team. Uh, it's a penalty. There's a penalty shot, and as the penalty sh- shooter goes in, the other five skaters follow, chase him in, and if he scores, it's a goal. If he doesn't score, the puck's in play, so it just keeps on going. If the puck goes into the net behind the above the glass in each end zone, comes back into play, it's in play. There's no whistle for that. It's just back in play. Very nice. And Sounds to me like the goalies are going to be um, lit up. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely not going to be a goalie league if you like to see defense. Yeah, well, the, the goalies are pretty good too, but there's there's a lot of scoring. So, so how did you recruit some of the players in this league? Because a lot of guys, I mean, obviously they they're on NHL contracts or two way contracts or AHL contracts or even ECHL contracts. So, how were you able to find? players to stock the league because a lot of these guys Tim and I have heard of I mean I don't follow minor league hockey as closely as I would like to but I mean of course there's some ex-NHLers in your league and there's a lot of guys who go oh yeah I remember him I remember him I remember him I was you know I was just looking down the list and I said wow this is a really impressive group of players we uh, actually signed 125 guys guys that couldn't be on NHL contracts or AHL contracts. So they're in between contracts or they're over in Europe or just coming out of college or guys a few years out of college are trying to make a mark and haven't quite gotten there yet. Our average age is going to be like 28 or 29. We've got some guys 22, some guys 42. Uh, But it's a fast-paced game, and that's what we're, we're looking for, people that can really execute at high speed. And... We had our draft. We drafted 54 players out of the 125. Not all of them could come to camp because of COVID. The leagues were still ongoing, as we all know that. And uh, even in Europe, the leagues extended. So we didn't get all the 125 guys at camp, but we got a good group of guys at camp. And we drafted off of some from the camp and some from paper, just knowing, knowing the skill level on that. So that's how we got our players. I guess that's kind of like a good segue question is, Starting up a league over the last couple of years, this is kind of the most inopportune time, I think, probably to be able to put yourself in that position to do a startup and be able to bring in all of these guys and try to coordinate that with all of the restrictions and everything else. Because I imagine you have players coming from all over the country and Canada and, you know, even in Europe and travel restrictions and everything else. What are some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Kind of getting to that point. We intended to start last year and just couldn't happen. Just there was no way it could happen last year. And we found ways to maneuver through the nonsense this year enough to be able to start up. And we still have challenges. We still have challenges with different aspects of it. But we're going to start and we're all excited about it. So what's maybe your vision as commissioner? What's your vision for this league throughout this season and then moving forward? How do you see it going or what's your brand plan? Well, AJ is really the founder and the, 
and his his vision, we're going to start with eight teams, but that got cut back for it because of all the situations. So we're at six teams, and the plan will be go forward with eight teams, eventually go more global, eventually start youth three-on-threes so that we can create a little league in hockey like they do in baseball. That's the game plan right now. That's something I love to hear is any aspect that's taken above and beyond the immediate right in front. You have the vision that doesn't have the blinders on. You're looking big picture and bringing in and, and having leagues develop you know, kids because what kid wouldn't want to play like this? And a big part of it, too, for the growth of the game, the growth of our league, is that when we drop the puck, we're going to be in, in 185 countries. And we'll be on CBS Sports and CBS in the U.S. We'll be on TSN and RDS in Canada. And then ESPN International is carrying us 183 countries. Excellent. E.J. Johnson, for those of you who don't know, is the founder and the CEO of Three Ice. And he was explaining to me, he threw out this fact that I just thought was fascinating. He said, next to the NHL, we're going to be the most televised hockey league. And I'm just like, wow. Even more televised than beach roller hockey was back in the nineties. <laughs> oh God, yeah, beach roller hockey. Actually, I used to be a fan of roller hockey international. Never did get to see the. Was it the world beach hockey? I forgot the name of it, but yeah, that's. It was kind of like a house league where like all the teams kind of played at the same rink, and that's kind of like what the three ice league is also where it's kind of like a barnstorming league where you go from rink to rink in different cities how is the format going to be is is it going to be like round robin somebody comes to a game what would that experience be like well all six teams will play in the first round the three winners will advance and the team that scores the most goals and loses advances to the second round then the winners of that advance to the championship for that weekend and they gather points it's all on saturdays Eight weekend regular season, then we have our championship weekend as a ninth weekend. And they gather points uh, in the standings, and they also, there's no salaries. They earn money by winning. So in the regular season, there's about a million, million two, million one, million two in prize money. And the last weekend, the championship weekend, there's another million one in prize money. To garner that money, you got to be winning. You got to win your share of games. And the last weekend's a pretty big, pretty big financial bearing for the players. There's a lot of incentive there. I was talking to one player for the last week, and we thought he wasn't going to be able to make it because he had some other issues. Mm-hmm. And we worked the issues out, and he's the happiest guy in the world. He can't wait to get on the ice on, on June 18th. So That's awesome. The opening weekend is in Las Vegas? Yes. Our okay. first weekend's in Las Vegas, and our, our championship weekend's in Las Vegas on August 20th. And you guys are playing at, I noticed, the, the Orleans Casino at yes, the, on the ice rink there? Yes, yeah. Used to go see Las Vegas Wranglers games there. Did you? Back, back when I used to live out there, yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, that was a nice rink. That's, yes, that's definitely a nice rink there. So what's the ultimate goal? Is there a Stanley Cup version for three ice? Actually, there's... going to call it the Patrick Cup? Yes, can, the Patrick Cup. that? That's what we're calling it, yeah. Okay. Very cool. Yeah, I'm I'm excited about it. I also noticed that on the website, Three Ice is selling T-shirts, and they have one. I think it has your picture on it, and it says, get Patrick on the phone right now. 
So what's that all about? And he calls that need reviews. They get you on the phone or something like that. <laughs> really, it really went from uh, the movie Miracle. Yes. And the movie Miracle, when Herb got named the Olympic coach, his statement was in the movie was, I got to call Craig Patrick right now. That's so right. That's, that's, that's what they put on that shirt. And that's the reason. So because I've been doing all the recruiting for the league, it's appropriate. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to ask, I know you played college hockey. You know, I was thinking about college hockey from the early 70s. I wasn't alive back then. But I know two very beloved members of the Chicago Blackhawks played college hockey. And as I did a little research, I realized that they were your teammates, Keith Magnuson and Cliff Coral. Right. And I was looking at that team and I said, whoa, wait a minute. Keith Magnuson and Cliff Coral and Craig Patrick are on the same team. Then I looked and I saw that you guys won two championships in the Western Collegiate Hockey Association. They were actually national championships. My apologies. So it was like the Frozen Four? It wasn't called the Frozen Four, but that's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. What do you remember about playing college hockey? Because I'm sure it was a very different experience back then than it is for players now. Well, back then... We were very fortunate that we had a good coach and we had lots of ice to practice on. A mile high, we were the best conditioned team in the country, bar none. I don't care. We, we worked three and a half hours a day on the ice and we could go to sea level and all of us could skate all night long. Uh, was, we were just in great shape. And we, and we had some talented guys like Cliff and Keith. So we're fortunate to win, but it was well-planned and well-deserved at the end of the day. Cliff was with us for the first championship, and then Keith and I were together for the two championships. Mm-hmm. And then we graduated. What I find really interesting is that that early 70s was really the time where you started to see some college players make it in the NHL. Now, I know Gordon Red Berenson was a star in collegiate hockey, and then he was a star in the NHL, and he there may have been a collegiate player before him to make the jump, but he was kind of like the first one that really got people like noticing college hockey as a source for potential NHLers. Then I looked at like those guys in the late 60s and the early 70s, such as yourself and like John Marks and Wayne Stephenson. And so that was kind of like really that first wave of where college players were becoming NHLers. I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts or memories about that. I do definitely because you're right. Not many college players. I think I think one of your Chicago Blackhawks, Red Hay, Bill Hay, he, mm-hmm. he was a college player. So I think he might have been the first. But then Red Berenson was behind him, and but there were only a smattering of them prior. It's just to, a handful. Yeah, prior to the '70s. You're right. A lot of us got very fortunate to make it in the '70s. So that was it. Was good to see. Now, I noticed that you kind of had two things, I don't say working against you, but when you were transitioning from collegiate hockey to the NHL, you were an American player, and there were a lot less Americans making it into the NHL back then, and you were also a collegiate player, and there were a lot less college players making that transition, whereas a lot of them were from the junior ranks. What was it like to be both an American and an ex-college player trying to just get over that hump and get into the league? It was interesting. So I graduated, and that was back in the days when they had the military draft. 
and my number was not high enough to exclude me from military service. So I decided to go active duty. And this was, that was during Vietnam. But I didn't have to go overseas for, for the military, but USA Hockey gave me the opportunity to be, I could have gone reserves and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do my two years and, and, and move on with my life. Mm-hmm. And USA Hockey gave me a chance to go to West Point as assistant coach and play for the US national team those two years. So that, that was a very, very fortunate thing for me to be able to do. And Absolutely. I play hockey. And then when I finally got out of the army, I turned pro. I got I had an opportunity to go to the California SEALs. I was Montreal Canadiens property, but they made some side deal that if I went to the Oakland's camp and made the Oakland team, then they'd sell my rights to them. So that's how I got in the NHL. When I turned pro, there were four Americans in the league counting myself. So, <laughs> so I, I got to ask, because you were at the Seals slash Golden Seals. Did you have to wear the white skates? I did. I did, did wear the white skates, yeah. Did they really weigh 10 pounds each by the end of the season from all the paint? Well, but everybody had the same issue, whether they're white or I don't know what color the Blackhawks were. I don't remember that, but St. Louis Blues had blue and gold. Oh, yeah. yeah I was going to say the blue and gold skates. Yeah. We started out green and gold out in California, and then Charlie Finley said, no, nah, everybody's doing that. Let's, let's do white. So we did white. Yeah, but, that doesn't show any marks at all. Yeah. Well, completely, completely clear. The trainers, the trainers in that era hated those skates because they had to paint them every game. I bet. What color, what color they were, they still had to be painted every game. See, and I always thought like it was a source of pride when your skates are beat up enough that it looks like you've had them for a while, like, you know, <laughs> versus having those brand new skates and, and that white coat of paint just always made them look like maybe like you were a rookie or something not you personally but you know like uh you know war wounds build character (laughs) yeah what it boils down to right so i gotta ask so in 76 77 you played 30 games for the minnesota fighting saints right alongside like dave keon and al mcdonough and the hansen brothers basically what what was it like playing in the WHA versus in the NHL at that time? It was, I'd say it's a lot easier. There weren't as many quality players in the WHA. There, there were certainly some, but there weren't a large number of them like in the NHL. Sure. I found that I had a lot more room in the WHA than I did in the NHL on the yeah. ice. So what was the catalyst for you going from the NHL to the WHA and then for you to return back to the NHL a year later? I played in the Canada Cup in 76, but my contract had expired with the uh, Kansas City Scouts. And so I was doing my best at the Canada Cup to get another contract. And in the process, Kansas City moved to Denver to become the Colorado Rockies. And the general manager, who was a new general manager, he decided not to offered me a contract so when the season started I I was sitting at home in Kansas City and Minnesota called and I wanted to play hockey so after Thanksgiving I I joined them and then 30 games later they folded for the final time and Herbie Herbie was coaching the University of Minnesota and I'd played with Herbie in 70 70 and 71 when I was in the army on the U.S. teams and I just said, hey, Herbie, can I come and skate with your team? I know they'll be in great shape and it'll be really beneficial to me. 
And well, until I can get a job in the NHL. And then Washington called me a couple of weeks later and I got signed by Washington. So I finished the season there and then another couple of seasons after that. When you played with the Fighting Saints, that was around the time Slapshot came out. I think it came out in 77. Do you remember those guys, the two Carlson brothers and, and Hanson? Yeah, well, I, I never played with Jeff Carlson, but I played with Steve Carlson and mm-hmm. Dave Hanson with the Fighting Saints. And Dave, Dave Hanson now is here in Pittsburgh, so I yeah. see him quite a bit. Yes. I don't know where Steve is. He was in Pennsylvania for a while because he had one son that grew up here playing hockey. But I don't know where he is now. So I'm going to kind of bounce back. We had the conversation about picking players for three ice right. and, and bringing those guys in. So I want to talk about coaches for a second here. So right. we've got Grant Fuhr. We've got Guy Carboneau. Trottier, Larry Murphy, Joey Mullen, John LeClay. Definitely no Penguins connection there at all. None, <laughs> none whatsoever, right? So I heard Larry Murphy doing an interview, and he was talking about the league, and he mentioned that never in his life has he coached hockey. He hasn't even really thought about coaching hockey before. And then he gets a call from you, and he's like, I'm in. How was the decision made, I guess, is the question, to, to offer coaching jobs? to this motley crew of guys that are well strapped with Stanley Cup hardware, by the way. They got, they got lots of Stanley Cups. Yeah, They know how to win. Some of them have coached, some haven't. But I know them all personally. I know their character. I know their passion for the game and their knowledge of the game. And uh, I just thought they'd be a, a good mix. And we were looking for Hall of Fame people, for sure. So Yeah. You got to put a face to the franchise, right? Right. It's definitely, uh, this, this is definitely a, a good crew to go out there with name recognition and everything else. And I, I just wondered, you know, of all the guys out there that you could choose, why these six? And I know you, you had said that there were originally going to be eight teams. Were the other two teams already taken off before you started structuring and offering positions and stuff like that? Or did you have two other coaches already? Oh, you want to see who got caught, Tim. That's not a nice question. Oh, I'm not asking <laughs> Which that. Which fame coaches did you cut? Yeah, though. I'm not asking that. I'm asking that. But I'm not asking that. We did have eight coaches. Two of them, for personal reasons, came to us and said, you know, it's not going to work for me. I'm, I'm the schedule that I have now. I just couldn't do it. So, okay. And that's not the reason we went to six, but we only had six, and then we decided to change our format a little bit. I got you. I got you. You had a really good relationship with Herb Brooks prior to the 1980 Olympics. How did you get involved with that team? Because I know that was when your NHL career was winding down around by that point. My last season was 78-79, and during that season, I realized there wasn't going to be another contract for me in the NHL. And so I started looking around for jobs in and out of hockey. Didn't really have anything going on. Then I got invited to play for the world champion, the U.S. team, the world championships in Moscow, and Herb was coaching. So we're in Moscow, and he made me the captain. And halfway through the the world championships, he came to me and said, you know, I'm going to be coaching the Olympic team next year. And and I've offered the assistant coaching job to somebody, but I don't think they're going to take it. And he said, would you be interested? I said, yeah, I'd definitely be interested because I've been looking for a job for a while now. And he said, good, well, and we finished the world championships. We went back home two weeks later. He called me 
and said, uh, as I suspected, the guy turned it down. He was still interested. And I said, definitely. And I said, when do you need me? He said, tomorrow. And this was in the middle of May. And I was in Washington, D.C., and he was in St. Paul. So I hopped in my car and got out there and sat down with him the next day. And the rest yeah. is history, as they say. <laughs> So I know you mentioned the uh, the Disney film Miracle a little earlier. So I'm sure you've seen the film at least one time. I have seen it once, yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> he watches it every day. <laughs> I know that there's some truth and there's some drama. There's some truth and there's some fiction or, or, you know, it's a movie. They take a few liberties with things. I'm wondering maybe if you know like one thing where you go, oh, yeah, this is totally right. They totally nailed it. This seemed like an accurate portrayal. And one thing where maybe to go, eh, that was Disney just kind of, you know, maybe fudging things a little bit just to make a more exciting movie. Does does anything come to mind? Yeah, sure. My thought on the movie was that Disney did an outstanding job. And Herb was there for the, all the directing of it. He was there through the whole process. And Kurt Russell got to know Herb so well, He, I even thought, Kurt Russell was Herb. I've Russell. heard a lot of people say that. He acted just like him. All those yes. mannerisms, they spent too much time together. They, they knew him inside out. But Disney did a great job telling the story. The storyline to me is perfect. The overall storyline is perfect. Sure, they, they have to hurry the story up because we were together for seven months, so they created a fight that never really happened. Sure. But, but it was just to show that there was animosity between the groups. And, and I, the storyline was perfect. And when, Herb, Herb, when I sat down with Herb in May of 79, he said the team wasn't going to be picked until July at the sports festival. We had a national sports festival that the 30 guys are going to be picked from. And then we we're going to narrow it down from 30 down to 20 so we could take the Lake Placid. But he said in May, middle of May, he said the guys we're going to have on this team don't like each other because he spent the whole year recruiting, or researching all the players in the country. And he knew who he wanted in May. And he put together a selection committee of top college coaches from around the country. And he sat with them every day out at the sports festival. And I was there just listening. He talked every one of those coaches into the guys that he wanted on the team. There were some other players there that I was quite impressed with. I hadn't seen any of them for 10 years. So I was playing pro. But I was impressed with some players. They didn't make the team. Herb wanted a certain kind of guy. He knew he was going to put them through, and he knew he had to have people that were going to be able to put up with it. And that's the type of team he wanted. That's funny. You said the, the fight, the fight argument thing that that happens really wasn't something that happens. But yet, here's you know the coach of the team telling you, hey, these guys don't like each other. Right. So right. we got to figure out how to make them play as a team. Yeah, so he's so he, to finish that, he said, the only way I know how to make them be a team is for them to be united against me, Herbie. And Craig, your job is just to keep the pieces together. Just all, That's all you have to do, just keep the pieces together. <laughs> Easier said, said than, than done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, that's it worked, so out really, worked out really well for all of us because the general manager worked at the Mayo Clinic, and he didn't have time to do the daily general manager things. Sure. Like, get the meal money, get make the travel, do all this stuff. So he asked me to be the assistant GM and handle all that. Well, that meant I, I was in close contact. And I had played with a bunch of the guys already, somewhere in the World Championships in 79. So I already had a good relationship with some. And then being able to take care of all their needs 
just got me closer and closer to them. So it was made my job easy and it made everything easy for, for what Herb was trying to accomplish. So, Tim, I know you're going to want to ask some questions about the Penguins. Yeah, so I grew up a Penguins fan. And, you know, when we were talking about this and, you know, doing this, I'm like, ah, I got I to gotta bring down the excitement level just a little bit because this is like talking to the boss, right? In my mind, it's like talking to the boss because you were essentially the architect of the franchise that I love for the better part of my fandom. Let's put it that way. First of all, I want to say thank you, if I can. <laughs> That's not too forward. One thing I wanted to ask, being a GM so long, and I, GM has got to be, to me in my mind, has got to be one of the hardest executive positions for an NHL team. Just because of all of the things that you have to deal with and all of the gears that are moving all the time. And throughout your, your tenure, you were able to pull off some blockbuster deals if i should say you know one comes to mind is the deal with the foot between the flyers and and the kings where you you brought in rick tockett and and samuelson and kenny Ragged and oh let us not forget the one with the whalers that pretty mm-hmm. much changed and paved the way for some more hardware but how do you break down the anatomy of something like that like something that big well, my grandfather was a coach and a general manager. He, play, he was a player, coach, and general manager. My dad was a player, coach, and general manager. My uncle was a player, coach, and general manager for my whole life. So I grew up in that environment, listening to them talk and just understanding a lot about how that job functions, so those fun- jobs function. And just being there, they were all gone by the time I got to Pittsburgh. They're actually my grandfather and my dad were gone before I went to the Rangers. But I had a pretty good basis of knowledge on how to do the job. And certainly you make mistakes. I learned a lot when I was in New York, but when I, I, I just learned recently that I'm the only general manager in Rangers history that never missed the playoffs. When it came to the end and I was let go, I knew I was going to get another job, and I knew I was going to be successful because how I dealt with things in New York. Sure. I just knew it. Being able to get a job in Pittsburgh was great. I mean, we we started with a great team, and we made it better, and we we had a lot of success here. We did a, a lot when we didn't have any money. Where like I was selling players, and uh, that was no fun. But we got a decent return most of the time. So when you look at your roster let's say at the beginning of the season, you know, there's dozens and hundreds of qualities that make a team and make a team great. You know, you've had various roles as GM, coach, uh, advisor, et cetera. So when you sit down and you look at that roster, what clicks and what makes you decide, this is what I want this team's identity to be when you start that off? Actually, it's a ever-changing landscape, really. Sure. You know, you come upon injuries or somebody gets, starts having a bad year. Maybe there's some disconnect in the locker room, things like that that you just got to be aware of all the time. And when I'm the GM, I'm with the team day in and day out. I have to have my hand on the pulse all the time. Sure, absolutely. Uh, let me ask maybe about a specific trait, because this is one that Tim and I always bring up, like when we just – start rambling about hockey history. The one that I'm still amazed by was picking up Ron Francis from 
the Whalers because I've always liked Ron Francis. It kind of seemed like Hartford was kind of giving up and, okay, we're going to trade away our best player. But then when he went to the Penguins, he like elevated his game. And then when he's, he's like in his mid thirties and he's like leading the team in scoring when like Mario had to take a season off. How did you pull that trade off? Or, or did he exceed your expectations? Because I'm still floored by that 30 years later. Like, wow, he went from Ron Francis, the really good hockey player, to Ron Francis, the Hall of Famer. And it was because of his time in Pittsburgh that really raised him to that next level. And that was in the latter half of his career. When he was in Hartford, there he was having problems with ownership, actually. And the owner told Eddie Johnston... Either trade him by Monday or you're, you're all gone. You're all fired. Jeez. So EJ called around the league. He called me. And we, we were fortunate that Johnny Cullen was second leading scorer in the league that time. And Zarlio Zalapski was a good young defenseman. So we were giving up some value for sure. And we knew Ronnie. Some of the staff didn't want to make the trade because they were afraid of chemistry. They were afraid because Johnny Cullen... And Mark Reckie and Kevin Stevens were playing gangbusters that year. And thank goodness they were, because then we were able to get Ronnie Francis. But uh, So it's all, all those things kind of fall in place somehow. And just uh, you just got to be there when it's happening. See, I could have answered that and just said, because this man's a genius. That's the answer. That's the <laughs> answer right there. That's all you need to know. Well, remember, that. hockey players are humble. They don't, they don't talk about their own accomplishments. Some of them do. There's a couple. Yes. (laughs) So here's a question you've probably been asked a thousand times, but I'm going to ask it anyway. When you're a player, who is the toughest, most difficult player to match up against as a player? Uh, Practice against Keith Magnuson every day. That's pretty tough. Mm. (laughs) He's very competitive, as you all know. But the guy that I played against in games – I could say a ton of names. The NHL is a high-caliber league. It's not easy. I don't know who I would pick. Gordie Howe, his elbows are pretty sharp. Stan Makita, he had a pretty good stick. Yeah, in more ways than one. So that's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I got a few whacks from him a few times. I was going to say, how many bruises were as a result of that? We, We share the same birthday, so... Oh, very cool. Yeah, I'm proud of that. I've been a hockey fan since I was 13. And so I got into hockey a little later than most kids. But one thing that I always took to was collecting hockey cards. I have quite a hockey card collection. So does Tim. And I know you've been on a lot of cards in the 70s. But you also appear on Yarmer Yager's rookie card from Mm -hmm. 1990, where you're shaking his hand. Do you remember like when you first saw that? Like, hey, I'm on this kid's rookie card, or, oh, no, they got me on it. I'm just wondering, when you saw that card, what your thought was about it? I felt embarrassed. I'm taking space away from the army. He was going to be such a great player. and just um, But I guess it's not such a bad thing. Well, we've got to ask the question, because we do a lot of hobby talk and hockey card talk on our show. Do you collect as well? I don't collect, no. No. Have you ever? I, I have collections, but I give them to my kids, my grandkids okay. now. I have books that I was given or whatever I've collected over the years that I gave to my grandkids. You know, you see a lot of players now 
you know, at the end of games, they trade jerseys with each other, trade sticks and stuff. Was there a lot of that that went on back in the 70s or did guys literally hate each other like they make it out to be? It's not as friendly as today. Today is, mm-hmm. but, you know, they compete just as hard as whether you like the guy or not, you're going to compete. The best sure. I just wondered how many, you know, yeah, if you actually got the stick that Stan Makita hit you with, <laughs> it gifted it to you afterward. Sorry, yeah. man. Here you go. <laughs> we, I was between the Ranger job and the Penguin job. I went back to the University of Denver at my alma mater as the athletic director. And as a fundraiser, I brought in the Blackhawk alumni to play the D- Denver University alumni. And Cliff and Keith played for Chicago. But we had, we had a game at DU Arena, and then we went a day skiing, and then we played a game up at Vail, too, on a, on a Sunday. Just had a great, great time. Nice. And Stan, Stan was the best with all the tricks with the sticks and the pucks. and all. He had a puck on a string that you couldn't get off. So, <laughs> And he had a, he had a st- oversized blade on one, one time. <laughs> he, was, he was just fun to, fun to be around. Yeah, he pulled a few of those tricks in the uh, 91 Heroes of Hockey game. An exploding oh, puck and a puck yeah. on a string and stuff like that. It's quite the showman. Good sense of humor for such a tough player. You know, I was a Blackhawk fan, so I'm still hurt over the 92 finals. And Tim makes it a point once a month to bring up that 91-92 series against the Blackhawks. And the, By the Penguins. Way, how many games did the Blackhawks win in that series? I, I forget. <laughs> you remind me. They won uh, two-thirds of a game one. Two-thirds, exactly. Two-thirds of a game. (laughs) Two periods of the first game. What do you remember about that series? Because obviously the Penguins dispatched the Blackhawks pretty easily. But the Hawks, well, in 1991, they had the top record. And then they bowed out in the first series against the North Stars. And I remember watching that final between the Penguins and the North Stars and saying, that should be the Blackhawks playing the Penguins. And then in 91-92, the Hawks didn't have home ice advantage. They weren't the best team in the league, but they still had a really great team. I mean, they went with 11 uh, straight wins in the playoffs. Obviously, you had Mario, you had Yarmir Yager, you had Ronnie Francis, you had Ulf Samuelson, you had Tommy Barrasso. You had just a stacked team. But what do you remember about maybe going into that series or your thoughts just about that second championship team? You mentioned that the Blackhawks are up in the first first two periods of the first game, and I didn't, I didn't think we'd come back. And all of a sudden, we made two remarkable plays and 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 won the game. But to me, that was the turning point for that series because we weren't we finished that playoff with eleven straight wins, mm-hmm. the last four being against the Blackhawks. But we were on a roll, and that kept our roll going. Just that one game, that one period changed a lot for us you talk about a high watermark in any kind of series you know battling it's usually like game three game four you know whatever we're talking about the third period of the first game right so that was pivotal i mean i think pretty much everybody who talks about that series in that game they talk about that goal scored by yarmir yager where he beat four or five blackhawk players on the ice and then scored and that really turned the tide well, it did, but it took Mario to put the puck yeah. in on Larry Murphy's rebound. Yes. Right. I saw uh, John LeClaire, or should I say Coach LeClaire, mm-hmm. um, on NHL Network a while back. 
and he was describing the game and how things are going to be set up for for the three ice league and he basically described it as pure excitement you could put that in quotes and put it on a t-shirt kind of pure excitement so if you had to pick two words maybe to describe the league like he did what would they be that those are two really good words that's that's the way i feel about it too it's just pure excitement because it's the ebb and flow is like nothing like I've seen before. It's back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And there's hardly any stoppages to play. And we don't have hitting and we don't have fighting. Those are penalties. So there's a penalty shot if those things occur or you know, regular slashing and all that stuff. That's all penalties too. So there's just a lot of action, a lot of action. The fans will be excited to, to watch this. These guys are going to have to be in such condition. You got to be gassed, like double, triple shifting up and down the ice. Yeah. Especially when you don't have, you know, four lines to rotate. Although everybody that came to camp realizes what kind of conditioning they have to be in. One day we played two tour stops. So one in the morning and one in the afternoon. So they played a lot of hockey in in one day. And they they were dragging. I can imagine. I mean, even if it's eight minute period, that's eight minutes. I mean, people don't realize they are always like, oh, these guys are only doing... 30 seconds on the ice or 40 seconds. Do you know how, I mean, these are the people that don't understand hockey. They've probably never skated in their life and they don't know what it takes to go out there and do a shift up and down and up and down. That's killer. And the fact that they're out there for that long, I can't wait. Honestly, I I can't wait. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm really excited. I know that you played with the Seals, the Scouts, the Capitals. So a trifecta of expansion teams in the seventies as well as the Fighting Saints. I'm wondering if you have an interesting or odd or crazy story because pro hockey was so different back then and maybe you have a story you could share with us that's suitable for broadcast. The thing that stands out to me about the games back then is, um, I mean, hockey was, was great hockey and it was very combative. The bench clearing brawls, which you never see anymore. Well, you can't see. You, yeah, you can't see them anymore, really. But back then, it was commonplace. We must have had five bench-clearing brawls with Philadelphia, and it was crazy. And and I have visions of one of the battles. There's a pile-up in the uh, spectrum at center ice, just bodies laying, and, and you don't know who's in there. You don't even know. And one of the one of the flyer defensemen, and I, I don't want to mention his name, was going around the outside of the circle spearing spearing into the pile. I don't, he doesn't even know who he's hitting. <laughs> I don't, and he, he could have been hitting Bobby Clark for all he knew. So it was just like different times, different times. I can't imagine something like that even happening today. Department <laughs> of player safety would have a field day with that one. <laughs> That's for sure. Thank you very much for being on the show. Sure. Bye, everybody. Get Patrick off Thank the you. phone. <laughs> Thank you. Our thanks to Craig Patrick for joining us on the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast, and thank you for listening to our podcast. If you've enjoyed this show, please be sure to like and subscribe. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Puck Junk. Tim is at The Real DFG. And until next time, collect what you like. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at Puck Junk.